Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Dad, we are thankful for you. Happy Father's Day. We are glad that you're here. I got a, a quick question for you, survey. I know we got different dads here at different stages of life. If you've got young kids, that's like elementary school on down. Would you raise your hand? Just show me. What a young dads do we have here today? All right, got some, not that you're young. Maybe some of you are more seasoned, so don't feel like, you know, vain. I'm young dad, I'm young dad. Maybe you're more seasoned. We got middle school, high school, college age dads. How many middle school, high school, college age dads we got here? All right, all right. I'm praying for you for sure, for sure. Out of, out of the home. They're out of college. They're working. Amen. They got jobs. How awesome is that? All right. Some of you put your hands down when I said that, but that's okay. We're glad that you're here, dads. And for those of you who are more seasoned in fatherhood, let me ask, can you remember what it was like when you, you first became a father and how helpless you maybe felt? I mean, there's joy and excitement of that, but how helpless it is. I remember last week after first service, I saw a new dad, and I walked up to him. He looked pretty tired. Uh, I told him that. And he's, his baby is days old, okay? I said, what's it like? Are you getting any sleep? He says, I'm here just to see people that don't live in my house right now. I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. All right, I got this. And then he started to tell me stories of what it was like. And he said, the other day, I was driving to the pediatrician, and do you remember last weekend, it was like monsoon rain? So there's a monsoon rainstorm coming down, and the car breaks down. Now, if you've never been a father before, let me tell you what that's like. You're sitting next to a woman who's done more work than you could ever imagine. So you're not asking her to do anything in this moment. You got a newborn baby in the back of the car, guess what, bro? It's on you, okay? I don't care what you know about cars. You better figure this out. And you can feel helpless. I had another dad come up to me after the end of the second service, and, and uh, is Drake. He works on our tech team, and if you know him, and they got a new little girl and a few weeks old, and he said she had her first blowout. It was like he was excited about this, by the way. <laughs> he said her first diaper blowout while I was changing her and had a picture of it about two feet away on the wall. I said, save that picture. You're going to want that picture. Guess who's cleaning that up? Hashtag dad life right there. There you go. And as I was hearing from these new dads in our church, it got me thinking back to when we first had our first baby, Ella. She's 13 years old now, and it was difficult pregnancy for my wife, uh, difficult delivery. We were in the hospital for five days, and we came home, and on the way home, my wife got sick in the car, and we knew something wasn't right. A few days later, she came to me. I remember it was a Saturday. I was watching football games, and she said, I'm bleeding a bunch. And we called the doctor to Saturday. And we went into the doctor's office, and he said, when's the last time you ate? And he was asking because he was going to do surgery, and he wanted to do it as fast as possible. And so she was going to go to surgery that night. A few hours later, we're in a hospital room. It's my wife, new baby, me. About midnight they come. They wheel her out of the room, and I'm sitting there. Let me tell you something. It was a little girl. I didn't know anything about little girl. Now I feel like, all right, little girls, we got this. Now, then I was like, I might break her. I don't know how to change her diaper. Like, I don't know anything. And I looked at that little girl and I thought, worst case scenario is my wife doesn't make it. We're both in trouble here, okay? Because I didn't know what to do. And dads, you've got some huge responsibilities that are specific to you, by the way. They're not just general things for parents. Like Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says, fathers. The Greek word there is not for parents, it's for dads. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. But bring them up in the discipline and training of the Lord. In other words, here, you're responsible to disciple your kids. Can't farm it out to the school. Can't farm it out to your youth pastor. Amen, Pastor Danny. Can't farm it out to your mom, your your parents, your wife, you. You might not do it. You might be passive. You might miss the opportunity. 
but God's holding you accountable. So what do you do? As I was sitting in that hospital room, that little girl, I don't know what happened. My wife made it. We've got three more girls since. But God had given me the one thing that I needed. One thing that if I got it right, everything else in life mattered. One thing that if I got it wrong, nothing else in life mattered. The one thing, no matter how many mistakes I made, it would make up for it. And Father, it's the one thing you need. But it's not just dads. It's actually the one thing in the Christian life that if you get it right, everything matters. If you get it wrong, nothing else matters. It's spirit-empowered love. Not just love like we hear about in romance novels, not just love like we hear about in songs all the time, not even love that sometimes we hear about at weddings. I'm talking about Holy Spirit-empowered love. And that's what we're talking about today as we continue in our series through 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you brought a copy of the scripture today, I invite you to join me there. If you didn't bring a Bible, we put the verses up on the screen. We've got Bibles in the back you're allowed to use during the service. You can keep them, take them home if you don't have a Bible. But we've been going through this book, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we find ourselves today. It's perhaps one of the most popular chapters in all of the Bible. Because you hear this passage read, even at weddings for people that aren't Christians, You hear it when people talk about like poetically speaking about love, it's in songs, there's references to it, it's it's a popular passage of scripture. The problem is it's usually ripped out of its context. And the context here is dripping with the Holy Spirit. The context here, remember a a few weeks back when we got into chapter 11, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for a while now, but when we got to chapter 11, we said it's a new section, and we're talking about being made for worship. I don't know if you remember that week, but when we started off that, that message, I was telling you about putting things together and how oftentimes the instruction manuals will tell you what something's made for, what it's not made for. And I complained a little bit, I have to confess, I complained a little bit about how at my house it's just assumed that if something needs to be assembled, I'll put it together. You remember that at all? Any of you guys remember me complaining? Remember my sin from the stage? You guys got that? Okay. And I said, if anyone can find a Bible verse that actually says that the dad or the father or the husband, whatever, is supposed to put stuff together, send me that Bible verse. During the service, I got an email. <laughs> so somebody was sitting there, smartphone, see what happens? It starts off with Ephesians 5.25. If you don't know Ephesians 5.25, it does not say anything about Ikea. It doesn't talk about assembly at all. But Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. So here's what the email says. Ephesians 5.25 just about covers everything, seeing that Jesus died for the church. A soccer goal is not going to kill you, Scott. There we go. Thank you very much. My point, my point in the whole thing was that we were made for something. And when we go to the manual, who was written by our, which was written by our maker, it says that we were made for worship. It says in John chapter 4 that God's seeking a certain type of worshiper. Not just any worship, he's seeking a, a worshiper in spirit and in truth. We saw in the book of Isaiah that we were created for God's glory. We read the Psalms that we're supposed to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, our God, our maker. And so we're made for worship. And in 1 Corinthians we saw, and we started the first part, talking about worship when we're gathered together in the assembly. We talked about communion and how we can't have real communion if we don't have union with God and with each other. And then last week we talked about being made for worship and using our spiritual gifts and talked about how the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. That's chapter 12. That's not just a little Jesus juice on top of something you're naturally good at. God actually supernaturally gives you a gift. It could be hospitality, it could be mercy, it could be teaching, it could be tongues, it could be interpretation of tongues, knowledge. There's a whole, there's 19 of them listed in the Bible, and the Bible's not exhaustive. And so he supernaturally gives you a gift to build up the church body and for the glory of God. And then comes this, and then we're going to go back to spiritual gifts in chapter 14, specifically tongues and prophecy. 
And so this isn't just like, oh, you know what, I'm going to take a little break and talk about love. This is still Holy Spirit stuff we're talking about here. And what we see, and we'll read these first three verses, is it's possible, here's the bad news, to celebrate communion, to sing songs, to know your spiritual gift, to know what your spiritual gift is intended for, to use it, to have incredible faith and accomplish great things, and none of it matters if you don't get this right. So look at what it says in chapter 13. We'll read all the chapter today, but just the first three verses right now. As if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just making noise. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and it's interesting, Paul takes the, their favorite gift, tongues, which doesn't build up the body, which is more for self. And so he says, it's not the highest gift. But then he takes this other gift that he's going to see next week, and he's be like, this builds up the whole body. And he takes his favorite gift. And he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, referring to one of Jesus' teachings, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, that's pretty generous. If I deliver up my body to be burned, so you're a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here's the deal. This whole passage, all 13 verses, are about love. But it's not just love in general. And that's why we've got to remember it. You can't just rip it out of its context. Remember last week, if you were here at church last week, you know, we talked about, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to move and do something because I didn't even realize it was Pentecost Sunday on the calendar. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit fell on the church and the church began, Acts chapter 2. It was also the Sunday that marked the one-year anniversary of two churches becoming one as Covenant Church had joined Southbridge Fellowship. An amazing thing happened. Two churches decided we cared more about connecting people to Jesus for life change than about our differences, and we became one. That's the stuff we're looking at in the Bible, like that we're supposed to be diverse and unified. And then we talked about Holy Spirit-given gifts. You know what happened last week? We're talking about gifts. I said in the sermon, this message is really like a family talk. If you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. You can listen in. We had two people trust Christ as their Savior last week. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, the Holy Spirit does that. Okay, that wasn't like a, hey, we'll get you here and we'll get you saved. Like, God just moved. And then a whole bunch of people responded and said, we need to use, I need to use my gifts, build up the church for the glory of God. That's the Holy Spirit moving and working. That's the context. We read these verses. And so what we're talking about here is not just love. Like, let's just talk some lofty talk about love and throw some Bible verses on it. We're talking about Holy Spirit-empowered love. And what we see in these first three verses, this is incredibly important. And so for our first point today is simply this, that Spirit-empowered love is incomparably important. Spirit-empowered love is incomparably important. Nothing compares to what we're talking about here. Because you think about it, oftentimes we'll prioritize our lives. Many of you have heard that, you know, the Stephen Covey illustration about the rocks, and you have a, like a clear jar, and you put all the small rocks in, and you can't get the big rocks in, so you dump all the small rocks out, and you put all the big rocks in, and it's like, now the small rocks fit. Oh, yeah, priorities, that's what that's about. You've got to put the most important stuff in first in your life. And so you think about that. Some of you, tomorrow, you're going to sit down, and you're going to think about your week. What do I have to accomplish on Monday, throughout the week? And you'll prioritize. These things have to get done. Other stuff will come up. Other things will happen, but I have to do this stuff. You're prioritizing. We prioritize when we budget. We prioritize with our to-do list. We prioritize with our calendars. We're always prioritizing. What's being said in these first three verses is not that when you think about your list of priorities, love needs to be number one. Love is so supreme that it informs the entire list. That if you remove it, the rest of the list doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have on the list. None of it matters. That's how important love is. It's incomparably important. 
It's central in the sense not that you, hey, you better make sure that love's higher than faith on your list of things that are important in your life, that you love more than you care about whatever else. No, that's not what we're saying today. If you take love off, you're wasting your life, is what the passage says. Not just any love, spirit. So here we're talking, you can't have that. You don't, if you don't know Jesus, you don't have the spirit, Romans 8, 9. If you know Christ, you have the spirit. At least this is a possibility. And so your whole life is a waste if you don't have spirit-empowered love, is what the Bible is telling us here in this passage of Scripture. You think about it, it's not just this passage. Remember when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, but he's like a superb student. He gives a bonus answer. Love God. Second one's like it. Love your neighbor. And then 1 John tells us, if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. And then we read passages like in Galatians chapter 5. Let me read you this verse from Galatians chapter 5. You talk about how important faith is to the Christian. Can't be saved without faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Listen to what he says in Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Doesn't matter. But only faith, but a certain kind of faith, working through love. Faith by itself? Okay, you can move mountains. Would be. Without love? Doesn't matter. And what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 he spends those first three verses giving three illustrations that make the same point, but they increase in intensity. Look at them. The first one's about gifts. He says, if I got tongues, and I can speak in tongues, and he makes up. He says, if angelic, I'd be at the level of angels. See, what the Corinthians were doing was saying, basically, if you, if you could speak in tongues, it was like a mark of your spirituality, that you were super spiritual. Paul rebukes that. He's not against tongues. He's against their abuse of tongues. But he takes their favorite gift, and he says, even if you had it to the highest extreme possible, but you didn't have love, you're just making noise. And then he goes in verse 2. Look what he says in verse 2. If I have prophetic powers, and all, so he's exaggerating here, nobody, only God's omniscient. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove Mount, I can accomplish great feats, but have not love. Isn't it interesting what he says next? He doesn't say my gifts are nothing. He doesn't say my faith is nothing. That's what would make sense. He says, I am nothing. I, my life doesn't matter, is what he's saying. It's a wasted life. But then it gets more intense. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love. So I'm, I'm a martyr. I can give away all my stuff, then go be martyred. And if I don't, it's possible to do that without love. If I don't love I gain nothing. So what you get here, if you look through these things, is that you can have great gifts, great feats. You can be known as a great person with great sacrifice, and it means nothing if you don't have great love. And so think about that for a minute. And since it's Father's Day, we'll make a Father's Day application. Dads, you ever think to yourself, like, with your kids, what are they going to remember when they grow up? I think to myself sometimes, they're going to remember these random moments when you say some statement that you've forgotten and you're like trying to have some great experiences for them, some great memories, like think about what are their greatest memories going to be. And I was thinking about last Saturday, my wife and I had one of those memories that I thought, that's, that's what parenting is like. My, my daughter was trying out for a soccer team over off Capitol Boulevard. We live here right off of Leesville Road. It's about 20 minutes away. And my wife took her over to the soccer game, and my wife did everything she was supposed to do. They were there about 45 minutes early, and there's one thing my daughter's supposed to bring. It's one thing. Soccer ball. 
That's their only responsibility. Show up with a soccer dressed with a soccer ball. They get there 45 minutes early. They talk, they have fun, they're waiting for trials to start. Typical kid fashion, five minutes before the trial starts. I don't have a soccer ball. And so my wife starts texting me, starts calling me. I go to my phone, I haven't seen it in a little while. And I've got multiple missed calls and I have a text that says answer your phone. Okay, first of all, I don't need instructions on it, okay? Like if I wasn't there, I didn't need like, oh, the phone's ringing, I don't know what to, answer, oh, answer my phone, okay, like that wasn't it. But I, so I call her back, she's panicking. Practice starts in five minutes, she's 20 minutes away, you do the math, it doesn't work. So she says, grab a soccer ball, meet me at Creedmoor Road. I'm like, where's a soccer ball? I don't even know where it is. I grab the soccer ball, I hop in my car, I drive as fast as I, legally and safely, I drive as fast as I can to get to Creedmoor Road. I put her on speakerphone as a mile away, and I start talking her through it. I was like, I'm getting off on Creedmoor Road, where are you at? She's like, I'm at the gas station, Creedmoor and Strickland. I'm like, okay, I'm driving, as I'm coming, I can see I'm gonna catch this red light. I was like, ain't nobody got time for a red light, but I'm not gonna run the red light. So I just say to Shanna, she's on speakerphone, I said, Get out of the car. She's like, what? And I, just, I pull up to this red light. I put it in park. I jump out of the car. I grab the soccer ball. I literally throw it over Creedmoor Road. She catches it. One hop, right? Hey, that's awesome, right? She catches it, gets in the car, drives away. And I was like, that's pretty cool. It was all done. Later, I text her. I said, these are the moments of parenting we are going to remember. She texts me back. Just hashtag epic. It's great. But if I just did that to show off my arm to the people that are driving across Creedmoor Road, or because it was my kid, it's an obligation, you got to do it, it's just what dads do, or for whatever reason, it was a task, like you just got to get the task done, it doesn't matter, it's nothing. And you, you think about it in your own life, like what are some of your moments, and you think that's going to be, that's the moment, they're, that's going to define their, parent, their childhood if without love, and it's possible to do anything, anything. He said here, if I give my life, you can, how could you possibly do, I read a story this week about a dad who jumped off of a balcony head first to save his child. Now, I don't know what his motive was. I don't know why he, if it was just a dad instinct, reflex, if it was out of love, like I don't, I just don't know. So I'm not commenting on it, but it's possible to do it without love, which means it was in vain. It's nothing, is what the Bible's saying. Without the spirit-empowered love. And so we gotta ask ourselves, do I, what is spirit-empowered love? And do I have it? Do I have the spirit-empowered love? And here's the reality. Most of us assume that we love, like I love my kids, I love my wife, I love my friends, I love certain people, and there's some people I need a little more work on, but I, I love. And are you sure? I remember when I was in a small group, when I was training to be a pastor, I was doing a, what's graduate school for pastors called seminary, and I was in seminary, I was in this small group with other guys that were training to be pastors, and I had this one guy, and one time sat down with me, and wanted to have a serious talk. It's important, that's one of the reasons why we do small groups. It's important to have people in your life that are able to speak truth in your life, even when it's not what you want to hear. And we sat down, and we started talking, he was asking different questions, and I'll never forget this question. He just looked at me point blank and said, do you even love people? And I was like, well, of course I love people. What are you talking about? And he had seen me share the gospel with people. He knew I loved to teach the Bible, and I was training to be a pastor and love Jesus. And, and he asked me that question, though. And I thought, why would you ask that question? And what he began to show me was some things in my life that didn't line up with. Now, emotion, like I, I felt feelings, compassion, and empathy. And, 
But my actions, which is what we're going to see in the next verses, some of my actions didn't line up with what we're talking about is spirit-empowered love. What about for you? Look at what it says next in this passage, verses 4 through 7, and what we're going to see is that spirit-empowered love is not only incomparably important, spirit-empowered love, when practiced, like we're going to read in this passage, is irresistibly influential. It's irresistibly influential. Look at it, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. I was lacking in these areas. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. I still struggle. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here we have a picture of love being painted. But it's like a great work of art. If you've ever been to a museum and you've seen certain pictures that are just, they're supreme. Like they're, a, they're different than the rest of the pictures in the museum. Then you know that the longer you look at it, the more you see and as you look at it from different angles, sometimes you see different things that the artist was highlighting with lighting or emphasis or size in a, in a picture. And that, that's what this passage of Scripture is like. A lot of times we read it or you hear it at a wedding and you think, I'm going to try and be more patient. I'm going to try to be more kind. And we forget the context. Remember the context? This was a letter that was written to Christians at a church in Corinth with specific situations, very similar to our situations, as we've seen why we're calling this series Letters to RDU. So what is he talking? He's talking specifically to the Corinthians in this passage. Love is patient. You remember when we talked about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11? They weren't even waiting for each other. They weren't even thinking about each other. He's saying, you're not patient. Love is kind. Do you know what kindness is? Kindness is like the opposite. Like the, like patience is like the, the I'm not going, I'm going to wait. When somebody hurts me, I'm not going to retaliate to them, even though I have the ability maybe to do something to them. That's, that's the more aggressive definition of patience. Kindness is, I'm going to proactively go be generous. They weren't generous. They were taking each other to court, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Think about, just look at some of these things in here and think about what we've learned as we've studied through this. Does not envy or boast. Remember when we started the series? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. There's division in the church because they're boasting. What about this? Does not, does not rejoice in wrong. Were you here when we did 1 Corinthians chapter 5? And they had a guy that was in an incestuous relationship and they were saying they were a cute couple. And Paul said to them, you're tolerating sin in the church that people outside the church don't even tolerate. You're rejoicing in wrongdoing. That's not love. He's addressing specifically the Corinthians here. But also, I don't know if you noticed, but you can read the whole chapter, and Jesus' name is not mentioned in this chapter. But if you read verses four through seven, you look at it from a different angle, you see, everything in this passage, actually, it's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Like, think about if I read this passage with, with Jesus in the place where it says love. Jesus is patient and kind. And Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That one makes me pause because there's a lot of commands in the Bible. But what we're talking about here is selfishness. And who's the one in the garden said, not my will, but yours be done, Father, who became obedient to death, even death on the cross? It's Jesus. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So think about it. They walk back through that patient and kind. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says that 
The Lord is not, he's not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient, waiting for more people to turn to him. Bible word, repent. He's not willing that, he doesn't desire for anyone to perish. So he's given us opportunity and more opportunity. Not only that, but remember, patience is more than just waiting. And here, patience is talking specifically not just about like circumstances, about people. It's when you've been wronged, not seeking revenge. And Jesus being reviled did not return reviling. Oh, but he had the ability to. Think about his abilities, and, and you read some of these. He's, he's kind, yeah, he gives his life for us, seeking generosity, and it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, Roman tells us. You look at here, boasting. If there was ever somebody who could boast, wasn't it Jesus? He could literally walk on water. But he, he doesn't, and he has the name that's above every name that every knee will bow and tongue confess. He could have boasted. He didn't boast. No record of wrongs. It's his blood that washes our sins away. It's he is the one that takes it as far as the east is from the west. Now, they're this red as scarlet, but he makes them as white as snow. He doesn't keep record of wrongs. There's no ledger. He doesn't bring back up to you. Look here. It's the truth. When, he, when I read that truth one, John 14, 6, that we saw when we were worshiping together, Jesus is the truth. He rejoices in the truth. He is that no one comes to the Father except for through him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, God is love, we read in 1 John. And so what we're reading about here in this passage is it's a picture of Jesus. And so that's why I say, like, if we would live this spirit-empowered love out, it'd be irresistible to other people because they'd then see an accurate picture of Jesus. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what if you put your name in here? Could you read through this passage? And of course you're not perfect all the time. It's, not, it's complicated. We're messy. And, but when you think about how you'd be characterized, are you patient and kind? You envy and boast. It gives these positive and negative things, and it comes back to the positive things. And can we do this? And then think about challenging you with that. But then I was overwhelmed with the fact that here's the reality: you see, Paul and other authors of the Bible pray for Christians to experience God's love. And what is it that we see throughout the Bible that we're supposed to love God, love our neighbor? We're supposed to. If we don't love our neighbor, then it shows we don't love God. But here's the reality: you can't give what you haven't received. If I just say to you today, exhort you, hey, you need to go love this way. Like, here's, here's the characteristics. You need to be patient and kind. Dads, come on, buckle up. I don't care how many times the kids are whining about stuff. You be patient. Keep no records of wrongs. Even though the next day you're like, remember yesterday how I, you know. And you're like, oh, I'll try harder. But if you haven't received this, you can't give this. It's like this. It's like if I, said, if I said to you today, I want you to go and give somebody in the back row, I think they need some money. I want you to go give them some cash. And you're like, I don't have any cash. I just got a credit card. I'm like, well, then you need some cash. Here, let me give you some cash. That's what you get for sitting in the front row at church, all right? So don't forget this. We're paying people to sit in the front row. And I give him 20 bucks today, all right? Now, I didn't say how much cash he had to give. He can go to that guy in the back row and be like, you got any change? I can give you a dollar today and $19 I'm keeping here. But if he didn't have the cash, he can't give the cash. And the same thing's true with God's love. See, that's why Paul prays. When he prays in Ephesians chapter 3, you know what he prays? I pray to believers. He's just spent three chapters telling them about their identity in Christ. You're sons and daughters of the king. You have every spiritual blessing. You've got the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, living in you. And then he says, I pray that you would know the height and depth and length and width of his love. Because here's the reality, and you need to hear this, especially though you from the south, you've gotten accommodated to the south. It's easy to just, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I think this is biblical love, but have you received this love? 
Because it's possible to have information without transformation. That leads to devastation, by the way. It's possible to have an education without an experience. To know truth without tasting the truth. To not have it in your heart, but to to know it, you know it. Like if I walk up to you and say, what is love? You can quote to me, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast, keeps no record of wrongs, does not seek its own. Like you have all those things down, right? But you don't have it in your heart. I was sharing with a couple this week, I was doing some premarital counseling with, we were talking, and I started to tell them about how for years I preached about grace and love. And I believed it. I believed it in my mind. And I believed it applied to you. But I didn't believe it applied to me. And so I didn't live like it. And then how God poured his love into my heart and began to pour his love into my heart. That happens more than once. It has to be an experience. It's not just something you learn by reading Bible verses. If you came up to me and said, do you believe God loves you? For God so loved the world. Well, here's the deal. Important. The way he did it for me was he started making me think about my kids and how much I love my kids. And it doesn't matter what they do, how bad they do stuff or what they do for careers or any of that stuff. And then it was like God said, that's how I love you. I just want, I just want a relationship with you. And it opened my eyes to his love. It's like Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says this. Romans chapter 5, or verse 5 says this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He wants to pour love into your life so you can say, now could you say this? Say like the psalmist says in Psalm 63 verse 3 when he says, your love is better than my life so my lips will praise you. That's worship. When the love's been poured into you and it overflows out of you but you have to receive it before you can give it, and the problem is, for many of us, is we can't receive it because of things in our life, often that are the things that are the opposite of what this passage says. Because of unforgiveness in our life, because of anger in our life, because of jealousy in our lives, because of pride in our lives. It's like it's blocking God's love. We're quenching the Holy Spirit. This is Spirit-empowered love, so in order to have it, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're blocking it, so what has to happen? You know what has to happen? We've got to die. We've got to die to ourselves. We've got to die to these. We've got to die to pride. We've got to die to unforgiveness. We've got to die to anger. We've got to die to gossip. We've got to die to envy. We've got to die to jealousy. And if you read, read Romans chapter 5 on your own sometime. It talks about one of the ways that happens, oftentimes through suffering. And I told you, you can look at this passage of Scripture from a lot of different angles. One pastor I was reading this week, uh, John Piper, in his sermon, he talks about how the call to love is a call to death in every one of these areas. And he uses an, a different translation of the Bible. So when he says forbearance, he's talking about patience. It's the same verses. But listen to what he said. Being long-suffering, forbearance, means dying to the desire for an untroubled life. Having no jealousy means dying to the desire for unshared affection. Not boasting means dying to the desire to call attention to our successes. Not acting unbecomingly means dying to the desire to express our freedom offensively. Not seeking our own way means dying to the dominance of our own preferences. Not being easily provoked means dying to the need for no frustrations. Oh, parents, I'm so sorry. Not taking account of wrongs means dying to the desire for revenge. Bearing all things and enduring all things means dying to the desire to run away from the pain of obedience. I've been thinking about this for several weeks. It's like this idea 
that in Christianity, death is not, it's not the same as anywhere else. In any other religion, it's really new life that happens through death. But we always have to, we're continually dying. Now think about Joseph in the Old Testament. If you don't know Joseph's story, it's, it's a long portion of the book of Genesis towards the end. Just go to the end and start backing up until you get a subtitle. Stop talking about Joseph. And what happens is God's got his hand on Joseph. That's really clear throughout the whole, the whole deal. But when he's a young man, 17 years old, Genesis chapter 37, I think it is, he's arrogant as all get out. And he comes and he brags. Love does not boast. He brags to his brothers and his dad about dreams that he's having and what God's revealing to him through these dreams. And, and they get jealous. That's not love. And they're rude. And they wrong him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in prison. Now, years later, what ends up happening is that he end, the dreams come true. But he's standing before his brothers. Read Genesis chapter 48. We always go to verse 50, chapter 50, verse 20. But Genesis chapter 48. He's been in prison, was forgotten there, and I believe something happened in his life where something died in him. Some of his arrogance died. Because his brothers are standing before him. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, you guys put me in this situation. He says, God sent me here. God's using this. And he's patient. And he's kind, generous. Although he has the power to seek revenge, he does not retaliate. He's not rejoice in the wrongdoings, but rejoices in the truth. Keeps no record of wrongs. Because he died to that arrogance that was there. It's like at some point he started to receive the love of God. Why do you think it is with Peter? Peter is not anointed to begin the church to preach the message that 3,000 people would be saved until after he fails. You see a lot of arrogance in Peter's life before that moment. Some of you here are going through difficult times right now. Isn't it interesting with the disciples? Have you ever thought about that story? We sang about it in a song earlier today where they're in the storm. Think about them being in the storm. The Bible says that they're afraid of the wind and the waves. What is it that Jesus uses as stepping stones to walk into their lives, those very waves that they're afraid of? Some of you need to die to fear. Some of you need to die to pride and anger. And there's suffering that comes into your life, and that suffering is the very stepping stones that God uses to access areas of your heart that you haven't been giving him access to. You need to receive his love. It's patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. We're told in our society, if you're going to love somebody, you've got to let them do whatever they want, which then forces you, because we're all sinful. We're all going to do wrong. You say, I want to do that. I want to. How many fathers? You know how to give good gifts to your kids? You don't give them everything they want because you love them. doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. keeps no record of wrongs. Some people don't come to church on Father's Day because they're so mad at Dad still. Forgiveness? This is, but you can't give it if you haven't received it. And here's the, here's the last part of this passage. It's the only thing that lasts. It's what's going to endure. Think about all these gifts that were given. They're all going to fade away. They're not going to be necessary. But God is love. Love endures. And so spirit-empowered love, it's absolutely imperishable. It's absolutely imperishable. Look at the verses we haven't read, starting in verse 8. Love never ends. Well, that's where the point comes from, just FYI. It's the only place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul uses the word never. Love never ends. And so here we've got to pause and say, well, we're clearly talking about a different kind of love than what most people are talking about, even at weddings, in songs, in novels, in movies. 
Because we all know, like we can wax eloquently and pretend, you know, euphorically as if it doesn't happen, but that love all ends. Infatuation ends. Even covenant love at the altar, about 50% of the time, ends. So this is a different kind of love. This spirit-empowered love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, this, that verse, by the way, is controversial. Different people argue about what does the perfect mean. What is it talking about here? Some people think it means the Bible, when the Bible was completed. I don't think that's true because what it says here in a minute is face-to-face. I think it's talking about Jesus' return. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, what he's talking about here is a decisive act. I put away or I gave up, depending on what translation you're reading, is not just when time passed, I became more mature. There's application for that for us as followers of Jesus. Because some people think just by being a Christian for some certain period of time makes you a mature follower of Jesus. If you want to know if you're mature, do you have spirit-empowered love? That's the mark of maturity. Not have I been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 75, 105. I don't know how old you are, years, okay? The question is, do I have this kind of love? That's the mark of maturity. And you think about that. Like, talk about kids. A bunch of you raised your hand that you were young, dads of young kids. When they do the stuff they do when they're little, that's cute. Diaper blowouts aren't cute at 40, okay? Kids not knowing how to spell, not cute at 40. All the stuff that they're doing right now, scooting around, climbing, crawling, snotty noses. 40-year-old walks into church like that, you're like, something's wrong. What Paul's saying here is, as a child, of course you act like a child. There's a time when you're a new believer in Jesus, of course you're not going to demonstrate all these characteristics. It's not even expected of you. But you make a decisive decision at some point. You have to decide. It doesn't just happen. I'm going to grow up in my faith. I, I, I want to love like that. And you begin to mature. It's not like overnight, it's like one or the other, you do or you don't. It's complicated. I get it. This is, we only have so many minutes in this sermon to talk about this, but it's a life process. And he goes on. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall, be known full, then I shall know fully. And as I have been fully known, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide of these three, but the greatest of these is love. And because it's Father's Day, I want to make the last application here, specifically towards dads. Dads in the Bible, you see two pictures of manhood. One is of Adam in the book of Genesis, and Adam loved. He was passive. He stood by. He let his wife face spiritual battles. He loved himself, and he cared about himself. And it became evident by his actions. It didn't matter what he said. It's evident by his actions. His inheritance to his kids, sin. Romans 5, verse 19, just through one man, sin entered the world. But wait a minute, Eve took the fruit, but God spoke the truth to Adam, and Adam was responsible in a way that no one else was responsible, just like us fathers. The other picture of manhood is mentioned in Romans chapter 5 as well, starting verse 12 through verse 19. It's the second Adam. His name is Jesus. Jesus took the initiative, even though he had no sin. He did what was in the best interest of us, rejoicing in the truth and washing away the wrongs. He took our sin upon himself at the cross and died the death that we deserve to die so that we could have life. His inheritance, eternal life. Those are our two pictures of manhood. Jesus loved like we talk about in this passage. 
Adam loved himself. One lasts forever. If you get one right, everything else in your life matters. If you get it wrong, nothing in your life matters. You're wasting your life. 